If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 22 through 33. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And the title of this sermon is Flourishing Ordered Equality. This is a text about marriage and about Christ. And so if you're here today and you're single, not married, um, it's really tempting to just kind of check out and say, this text is not for me. But I want to encourage you against that before we even begin. Um, this is um, two things. First and foremost, if you're not married, uh, this is a model of both what you should be um, and what you should be looking for in marriage. Second, and most important, uh, this text is about Christ. And so even if you're not married, this is what you should be seeing in other marriages and be encouraged in, in the person of Christ, to understand him more. Uh, this text is about the gospel. So Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. How many of us want to flourish in our marriages? How many of us want to glorify and reflect Christ to a looking world and to our families? Well, what if I told you that the two were one and the same within a biblical marriage? Today's text is incredibly controversial for all the wrong reasons. Number one, it's been misunderstood and even mistaught. And second, it's been very misapplied and abused over the years. So our goal today is to understand this text rightly and obey it completely. And I want to suggest that when we do, our marriages will flourish and Christ will be glorified. Sound good? Okay, so before we dive into today's text, I want to start with two others to kind of set the stage. First, let's start where all good stories start, in the beginning, Genesis. God's story begins with him purposefully creating everything and seeing that it was good. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. In other words, God creates man and woman, male and female distinct and equal. There's male and female, equally created in the image of God, equal in value, being, and worth. Side note, and worth noting, God names male and female Adam, which means man. Might he be hinting at or implying that man will carry responsibility and authority in a unique way. I think he does. Let's keep reading. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden 
to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Here's what I want us to see. Man and woman are equal in value, being, and worth. Equally created in the image of God. And distinctly created with purposeful roles. What does verse 15 tell us? It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work it and keep it. Adam's placed there with two Hebrew words, avad and shamar. And these two words, the first word, work, means to till or to serve or to cultivate or to make flourish. That's Adam's first role, to make flourish everything that's under his care. Then he's to keep. And this word means to guard or to protect and preserve. So, he's to make the garden flourish, and he's to protect. Remember these roles. And right after verse 15, Adam's given a clear command from God. So, he's not a god unto himself. He's under authority before he's given any authority. Do you see that? He's not autonomously authoritative. Then, we get verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Adam isn't meant to be alone. He's not self-sufficient. He's lacking something or someone. So God decides to make him a helper fit for him. Now, before we wrongly assume that helper is a derogatory term, Remember that God himself, all over the Bible, is called a helper. Psalm 54.4 Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. This isn't about unequality. It is about roles. And all of this was God's good idea from the beginning. He's all-wise and all-knowing. And this is how he purposefully designed us. Immediately following verse 18, God gives Adam the task of naming each of the animals and then naming woman. It's important to know that naming in the Bible is an act of authority each and every time. So Adam is given authority. And what's his role? to flourish, or to make flourish, and to protect. And I want us to remember that all of this is before the fall. Roles aren't a result of sin entering the world. So, how does Adam do in this? Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, Satan, shows up on the scene, and what's the first thing that he attacks? God's good created order. He goes immediately after Eve, not because she's less smart or less gifted or less informed on God's commands, 
None of that. But because Satan knows that God's good created order displays God's goodness and wisdom. So Satan goes after Eve. He questions God's word, convinces her to eat the fruit that they were forbidden to eat. And look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam was standing right there. What should he have done? Remember his role. He should have protected. He should have crushed Satan's head right then and there. He was supposed to make Eve flourish. Instead, he was passive. And he let the lies of Satan destroy her and him. She usurped Adam's headship and authority by leading the way into sin. And he passively followed. Another side note, Romans chapter 5, if you go and read verses 12 through 21, Romans 5 squarely blames Adam for the fall. Have you ever wondered why that is? It's because Adam is uniquely charged with the role and responsibility of leading. Mankind was, was named after him as a symbol of that authority. Project Adam had failed. And what happens after that? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God makes a promise that one day there will be a seed of Eve that will do all that Adam should have done. This promised seed, this true and better Adam, he'll crush Satan's head. That's the good news. That's the first gospel in the Bible. Then God reveals a, a the consequences of Adam and Eve's fall in what are known as the curses. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. See this. God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What's up with that? Well, it's the same language. It's parallel to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where God is speaking to Cain. God says this. He says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Same language as Genesis 3. So what's God saying here in Genesis 3? Ray Ortland writes this. He says, just as sin's desire is to have its way with Cain, God gives the woman up to a desire to have her way with her husband. Because she usurped his headship in the temptation, God hands her over to the misery of competition with her rightful head. This is justice, a measure-for-measure measure response to her sin. On the other side, he, meaning Adam, will rule over you, the text says. And there's two different options here. 
Either God's saying, Eve, you will sinfully usurp his leadership, but he will exercise his rightful calling over you. That's one option. Or he's saying, Eve, he's going to dominate you sinfully. He will rule over you. At the end of the day, here's what I want us to see. We live in a broken world. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world where God's purposeful creation order for us is marred with sin. Yet, the call of godly authority exercised rightly is still good and still right. I know that this is the longest intro to a sermon ever, but we're going to look at one more text before Ephesians 5 because this matters. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 4. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 4. Now these are the last words of David, King David. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of, of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, pay close attention here. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Doesn't that sound awesome? Like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Do you see what he's saying? When godly authority is exercised rightly, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, everything under him flourishes. There's, there's light and there's rain. Guess what that produces? Fruit flourishing. Authority isn't bad in and of itself. It's great when exercised under God's plan. It serves everyone else under it. Okay, so God has a design. He has a plan for what godly authority looks like. He has a plan for what roles in marriage look like. With all of that in mind, let's dive into our text. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. This is the word of the Lord. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What we see in this text are three key truths. Number one, instruction for spirit-filled wives. Two, instruction for spirit-filled husbands. And then three, instruction for spirit-filled evangelism. So point one, spirit-filled wives in verses 22 through 24. You'll notice that I've started each of these points today with the adjective spirit-filled. And this is absolutely essential. Uh, this text doesn't just appear in a vacuum out of nowhere. There are verses right before it, and they matter. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 5, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Then, as Rob taught us last week, the key command is in verse 18. To be filled with the Spirit. So how do we order our lives wisely? We position our sails so that we can be filled with the Spirit. What happens when we do this? Our relationships are changed. They're affected. And that's what this section through chapter 6 verse 9, which we'll hit next week, that's what this is all about. Relationships both household and marketplace. These are the specific examples of what it looks like to submit to one another from verse 21. When you're spirit-filled, your relationships with your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, your employees, your employers, it's different. They're ordered and empowered by God himself. How can they not be different? When you're spirit-filled, you begin, as verse 21 called us to, you begin to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. On the other side of the coin, to actually obey these commands in the following verses, you must be spirit-filled. We can't do this on our own. Hear this. We'll never just naturally obey these commands in a post-Genesis 3 world. As we already saw, our sinful natures will actually rebel against these commands because of the curse of the fall. So, we put up our sails. We saturate ourselves in God's word. We commune with God daily, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second. And what's the first command here? Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So let's start with the who question. Who is the command for? Wives, not women in general. And they're being called to submit to whom? Their own husbands, not men in general. In other words, wives, the command is submission to someone that you've covenanted your life with, not some random man who doesn't know you, love you, and hasn't made a lifelong commitment to you. This command comes in the context of the most intimate earthly relationship possible. So that's the who. Now on to the what. The command is to submit. 
That's a gross, uh, offensive word to our modern cultural sensibilities, isn't it? Let's just admit it. We don't like to submit to anyone. But let's understand what exactly this word means. It's the word hupotasso. And hupotasso means to place or arrange under. In other words, it means to place ourselves under the protective care of another. So think of an umbrella. If you hupotasso yourself under an umbrella, it guards you. It keeps you dry. It protects you. It takes the force of the rain for you. It's also a willful or a voluntary submission. It's not the husband demanding it. It's for the benefit of the wife. And this is the whole point. This isn't about male chauvinism. It's not about authoritarianism. It's about God's good and purposeful plan to protect you and to help you flourish under the godly authority of another. There's nothing degrading or dehumanizing about this ordered equality that God calls us to. That's what Paul's talking about here. In fact, if submission, if submission entails a difference of value or of equality, we've got a massive problem on our hands. Why? Because Christ, the Son, is equal in value, being, and worth to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. Yet, he willingly submits himself to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 27 and 28. It says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, referring to Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Do you see it? Ordered equality in the Trinity and in the home. Some of you may be thinking, well, great umbrella, Drew. What if my umbrella is faulty? What if it has holes in it? What if it actually doesn't protect me at all or help me flourish? We're going to hit different aspects of this as we move through the text. But for now, I'll simply say this. Husbands, as the one with primary responsibility in all of this, husbands will be called to account by God himself. In the garden, who did God come after first? After the fall, the man, the man. Genesis 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? We've already discussed how in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that Adam carries the blame, even though they both ate the fruit. Husbands, you are called to godly leadership in the family. You bear that responsibility. More on what that role looks like later in our text. But you will give an account to God for how you protected his daughter. Let that sink in. Wives. There's also helpful instruction in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6 on this. Go read it later. It's really helpful. Let's keep going. 
So that's the who and the what. Now on to the how. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Do you see that? As to the Lord. Now, Paul's not saying to submit to the husband as Lord or to treat him like the Lord. He's saying, wives, when you submit to your own husband, you're simultaneously submitting to Christ. See this. Our primary loyalty is to Christ in all things. The more we dig into this text, the more we'll see that Christ is the end goal here. Not submission and not even marriage. You're ultimately obeying this command out of a spirit-filled love for Christ. So with some caveats that we'll walk through later, even if the umbrella is faulty, you can joyfully submit knowing that you're obeying Christ. The who, the what, the how. But what about the why? Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Notice this. Paul's saying, this truth, this thing that I'm calling you to, it, it isn't cultural or, or time-bound. How do we know this? Let's, let's ask some questions. Is Christ the head of the church in Nicaragua, in Europe, and in Japan? Yes. Three very different cultures, and yet Christ is still the head of the church in those places. Is Christ the head of the church in the first century? And in the 21st century? Yes. That's the core truth that Paul's rooting this command in. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Head, throughout scripture, means authority. He's given as authority to his wife. But remember 2 Samuel verse 20, or chapter 23? Good, godly authority is an amazing thing. It's a blessing and not a curse. When one rules justly, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Headship is not about male domination. It's about godly leadership that blesses those under it. Again, Ray Ortland defines biblical headship this way, and I think it's helpful. He says, biblical headship, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Protection and flourishing. Fruitfulness. The example Paul uses here is Christ in the church. So I'll ask another question. When does the church flourish most and produce the most fruit? When she submits to Christ under his humble, godly leadership. It isn't demeaning or derogatory for the church to submit to Christ. It isn't a burden. It's glorious. It's our joy. He's the church's savior. Christ 
exercises real authority over the church. He's humble. It's servant-oriented. And it's saving. His headship over the church is for her benefit and for her flourishing. Then look at verse 24. Here we get the scope of submission. So how wide does this submission go? It says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Understand this. This phrase, in everything, it's all-encompassing. It isn't just a niche hole where a wife submits to her husband. It's in everything. Sinclair Ferguson rightly says, it is usually a danger sign when our first reaction to this exhortation is to find ways in which to restrict and limit it. Paul is encouragingly glad, not reluctant. He is encouraging glad, not reluctant submission. Wholeheartedness is the key. With that said, and while the scope of this is all-encompassing, it's not meant to be absolute. Hear this loud and clear. A wife is not called to submit to her husband in matters of sin, harm, or in participating in things contrary to God's command. These are faulty umbrella situations. Acts chapter 5 is such a good example of this. Acts chapter 5, we have a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira. The husband sells a piece of land, and then he lies to the apostles about it and to the Holy Spirit. He's struck dead. His wife then follows him in this sin, does the same thing. She shouldn't have, right? She's also held accountable with her life. A wife is not called to submit to her husband in matters of sin, harm, or in participating in things contrary to God's command. Several verses later of Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we have the apostles being commanded to do something outside of God's will. And what's their response? We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Wives, your first and primary submission is to God. If you're being abused, you're not just called to submit to that. You should call the police. Same in the church. Neither God nor Paul are calling women or anyone else to submit to abuse. These words aren't conditioned on a husband's love for his wife. But abuse is sin, harmful, contrary to God's commands. Wives aren't just being called to slavish obedience here. Christ's character is the standard. He colors everything all the way through. I love what Kent Hughes says here, and this seems to go in connection with 1 Peter 3. He says, But then there is the matter of ungodly headship. Faulty umbrella. Ungodly headship. What then? The fact that a wife wants to honor her husband's leadership, if possible, does not mean she will sit in mute silence. Questioning his reasoning or acquainting him with his error is not evidence of a rebellious spirit, but rather of love. Refusing to support his moral folly is not a sin. 
A Christian wife can stand with Christ against her husband with a humble, loving spirit, which indicates her longing to honor his headship. Wives, humble submission to covenantal, godly authority only happens by being spirit-filled. And when it happens, it's glorious. It's God-honoring. It leads to your flourishing and protection. So, what about husbands? Point two, spirit-filled husbands, verses 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Do you notice anything different about this section from the wives section? Sheer volume. There are three times the amount of verses here given to husbands. Husbands. There's more instruction, more weight on you here. This isn't to to beat you up or to burden you unnecessarily. But you do carry more responsibility here. Men, we can't afford to be passive here or authoritarian. Those are the two ditches that we tend to fall into, passiveness or authoritarianism. The display of God's character and the gospel is on the line. So, what are husbands called to? First, husbands are called to love and to die. To love and to die. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you see that? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to take a moment just to explain this to you. How did Christ love the church? By giving himself up for her. He came to this earth as a groom for his bride, which is us. He lived a perfect life on her behalf. Even though she rebelled against him and was unfaithful to him, he was faithful to her. She deserved death because of her sin. And he, he paid that penalty. He went to the cross and he died in her place to love her and to save her. He died to make her alive and new and declared righteous. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is the good news of the gospel. If you repent of your sin, if you turn from it, and you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom who will never leave you or forsake you. Come to him. Trust him with your life. A husband's calling in marriage is to love to die. Sacrificial love. Nothing about this is authoritarian 
or degrading to women. It's glorious. And I want us to understand this. We might think that the first couple of verses are controversial in our day or countercultural. This call to husbands was so countercultural in Paul's day. One commentator points out that marriage was in shambles during Paul's time. Listen to this. Demosthenes said, We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian of all of our household affairs. Xenophon said that it was the husband's aim that a wife might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. Similarly, Socrates said that, is there any, anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? The ancient pagan man breathed adultery. The marriage bond was virtually meaningless. It was better with the Jews, of course, except that the ultra-liberal and very popular school of Hillel allowed a man to divorce his wife for virtually anything, like putting too much salt in his food or becoming less attractive in his eyes. Yet, here, we have Paul commanding Christian husbands to love and to sacrifice for their wives. In the midst of all of that, this is radical. So, what does this love look like? Husbands, love your wives. What does this love look like? It looks like everything we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is a dying to yourself. We've all seen the chivalrous movies where a man literally dies to save his, his wife. I hope that all of us would be willing to do that. But I wonder if actually dying to ourselves daily is a lot harder than that. Every time we want our way selfishly, or every time we're just plain tired and want to be lazy instead of serving our wives, dying to self. Dying to self. Nowhere in Scripture is love defined by taking advantage of others for personal gain. Love is dying to yourself, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, I'm assuming that most of you want this kind of leadership from your husbands. That's a great umbrella to come under. You see, the solution to bad or authoritarian leadership isn't no leadership. It's good and biblical authority exercised rightly. Second, this sacrificial love. It's a love that prays. How did Christ love the church? Yes, he sacrificed for her, and he prayed for her. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for the church. So husbands, 
Do you pray for your wives regularly and intentionally? This has convicted me deeply this week. I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself. Do you pray for your wives regularly and intentionally? I don't know where you're at with this, husbands. But we can all grow in this. Will you commit with me this week to do two things? Number one, ask your wife specifically how you can pray for her. Then second, do it. Pray for her every day this week. Don't be passive in this. Lead. Sacrifice and pray. Third, be faithful. Be faithful. Christ is ever faithful to his bride. Husbands, Christ is our example. He will never be unfaithful to his church. We're called in all things to be faithful to our wives. With what we allow our eyes to see. With our conduct towards other women. With every aspect of our lives. Be faithful. And Paul spells this out more for us. Look at the result of this sacrificial faithful love. Verses 26 and 27. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See this. Husbands, we can't physically die to atone for sins. Only Christ can do that. And we can't impute righteousness like Christ does. But our sacrificial love leads to sanctification of our wives, according to this text. In other words, when we lead like Christ, our wives become more Christ-like. While her salvation and her righteousness is solely from Christ, you are the primary instrument God has chosen to help her grow in sanctification. So how do you do this? Through the word of God. Through being spirit-filled yourself. Through encouraging her in her pursuit of Christ. Through praying for her. Through loving her sacrificially and unconditionally. Kent Hughes asks us a poignant and convicting question here. Husbands, is your wife more like Christ because she is married to you? Or... Is she like Christ in spite of you? Is your wife more like Christ because she is married to you? Or is she like Christ in spite of you? Your calling as a husband, more than having a good golf swing, more than knowing what's going on in the sports world, more than being at the top of the food chain in your company, more than any of your hobbies, is to follow Christ, to sacrificially love, and to lead your wife toward Christ-likeness. Hear this. If you succeed in this, and everything else fails, you're a faithful husband. But if we fail at this, and we succeed at everything else, we need to repent and to reprioritize our lives. So the command is to love and die. 
The result is that our wives are sanctified and grown in holiness. Now Paul gives us some logical motivation. Look at verses 28 through 31. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you see the logic here? And to be clear, this isn't Paul leveraging our selfishness as men. He isn't saying, you love you some you. So, love your wife like you love yourself. No. But he is saying, a sane and stable person takes care of their own needs. When we're functioning normally and rightly, we take care of ourselves. And according to Genesis 2, which Paul quotes here, husbands and wives are one flesh. Husbands. Take care of your wives. Be attentive to her needs. Provide for her. Nourish and cherish her. And again, our example is Christ. Isn't that encouraging? Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. He loves you, church. He's attentive to your needs. He'll take care of you. He cherishes you. Jesus loves the church. Even though we're imperfect and we don't submit to him perfectly, he loves you. He died for you. Men, whether you're a great husband or a bad one, all of us can grow in this. Start today. Sit down with your wife and repent of prayerlessness. Repent of laziness and inattention to her sanctification. Repent of whatever you need to. Today's the day. It can be a new day. Today can be the day that your marriage is forever changed. As with wives, none of this can happen without being spirit-filled. This is how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, joyfully place yourselves under the care and protection of your loving husbands. And this leads us to our third and final point. I promise you it's short. Point three, spirit-filled evangelism. Look at how Paul closes this section, verses 32 and 33. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul has already made this point multiple ways, but here in verse 32, he says it again. He's talking about the gospel, the mystery, remember? What was once hidden and is now revealed, the good news of Jesus Christ. Drew, I thought we were talking about marriage here. We are. But the purpose of marriage is displaying the gospel. From the very beginning, God's plan for marriage was to show the world what he was like. To create, at the center of civilization, 
a parable of his love for his people. Christian, your marriage is meant to be evangelistic. It's meant to display the good news of Jesus. When a husband and wife joyously live out everything God's word just commanded us, when that happens, it's unique. It's life-giving. It leads to fruitfulness and flourishing. And it radiates the gospel. Everyone around you gets to taste and see the relationship between Christ and his church. They get to see sacrificial love that's beautiful and selfless. They get to see the joy of humble submission that delights in their husband. Think about it. When you see someone who's head over heels for their husband, you think, wow, that guy must be pretty awesome. When you see someone who loves their wife unconditionally, you think, wow, our marriages are meant to paint that picture of Christ and of the church. He loves us unconditionally, and we're head over hills, joyfully submitting to his headship. That guy's pretty awesome. That's what's on display through your marriage, to your children, to your neighbors and friends, to others in the church, to those who don't yet know the love of Christ. God has built a parable of his good news into the basic building block of society. Do you see that? Many, many of your neighbors and friends will never set foot in this building. But they will see your marriage. Do marriage to the glory of God. Your marriage is meant to display the gospel. Paul's instructions for marriage here are countercultural, and they're glorious. When we obey these commands, it leads to flourishing, and it leads to God being glorified. So let today be the day that you commit or recommit to doing marriage God's way. As we commonly sing this song, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own love he bought her, and for her life he died. Let's pray.